Many of us, uh, perhaps all of us, this morning have, um, have a commute of some kind. We, we have a commute to school or work or, or at least to church. We all commuted to church in, in one way, shape, or form this morning. Some of us walk, others ride the bus, uh, some hop on the metro, and still others drive. And I'm guessing that before you begin your, your journey, wherever uh, to wherever it may be, you adopt a particular mindset. Uh, it's Friday at 3.30, and you're trying to get out of D.C. And so you remember that you need to be patient, because everybody else is trying to get out of D.C. too. So you've got to be patient as you wait to get on the metro. It's 10 o'clock on a Tuesday night. It's dark and cold, so you, you take your coat and your light and you travel with care because the sidewalks can be slippery at this time of year. Or, or perhaps you are driving into the city on Thursday morning at 8 a.m. You select an audiobook or your favorite podcast in order to turn your mind away from the back and forth traffic and onto something useful. No matter what kind of commute you have, no matter the length you prepare for it. The, the preparation can be as small as putting on a coat or as significant as downloading a full-length book, pulling up directions to your destination, packing three water bottles, two cups of coffee, a pillow for when the traffic comes to a stop for 20 minutes without explanation. We, we prepare for journeys, don't we? We leave at specified times, like not 8 a.m. on a weekday morning going into the city. Um, we use specific forms of transportation, uh, adopt specific mindsets and outlooks for the joys and jolts of the journey. If we take such care and give such thought to our journeys on earth, what kind of care should we take as we make our journey to heaven? How do you prepare for that journey? How do you pursue that journey? As we studied 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 to 12 on our last Lord's Day together, we, we likened 1 Peter to something of a travel guide for Christians making their way home to heaven. If that's true, if we have a destination before us, how then should we journey? What should be on our minds as we, and what should we focus on as we journey? What truths or, or faith facts about this world, about our journey and our destination should we remember? How should we live and love God and others as we journey? How does God's character itself inform our ethics and the ethos of our journey? How does Jesus' death empower us and empower our steps? Well, these are the questions that Peter begins to answer in 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning there in verses 13 and traveling through verse 21. And this is what we have the joy of discovering together this morning. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to open up your Bibles or turn on your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning there in verse 13. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you should be able to find the passage beginning on page 1014. 1014. In the first 12 verses of this book, we met the author and the audience of the letter. The Apostle Peter, one of Jesus' first disciples, is the author. Peter, he was an eyewitness to Jesus' life, his sufferings on the cross, and his glorious resurrection from, from the dead. 
The audience is a combination of Jewish and Gentile believers in Jesus Christ, likely with Gentiles making up the majority of the, the churches that are scattered throughout what we know today as modern Turkey. These believers in Jesus, we learned, they were facing oppression. They were facing opposition for their faith in Jesus. They were being pressed by those around them to conform to the ways of the world. Those in the Greco-Roman world wanted these believers to join in debauchery, in sexual immorality, in drunkenness, and probably worship at the local uh, cult temples. These believers, these believers in Jesus, they refused to do these things. They refused to conform to the passions of the world. And so they were greeted by their neighbors and family members. They were greeted with surprise and scorn and slander, Peter tells us. And that is when Peter reminded the recipients of this letter that they are strangers, that they're sojourners. Christians, according to Peter, are elect exiles. They are strangers and sojourners outside of their homeland. And so the overall aim of Peter's letter is to strengthen sojourning and suffering Christians who are longing for their home country, which is a heavenly one. The message of Peter's letter, if you want a one-sentence message of Peter's entire letter, is this. Live as God's elect exiles. Live as God's elect exiles. That's the one-sentence summary. And that's where Peter's letter connects with us. What Peter means by this admonition, really, to live as God's elect exiles, is they were to live as those whom God has loved from before the foundation of the world. Live as those who have been rescued and redeemed by Jesus. Live in the knowledge and joy that God will guard and keep you so that you receive your heavenly inheritance. Peter reassured these believers that they, and really we, we will receive the salvation that the old covenant prophets prophesied and that the new covenant preachers proclaimed. That's what we learned from the first 12 verses of this little letter. But what do you do? What do you do after you have, after you have comforted a fellow believer with the good news that God will guard and keep his sheep? After you comfort, you challenge. You call your fellow believer to action. And that's what Peter does in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 21. Here we are greeted with Peter's challenge to his readers. Specifically, Peter wants his readers to live in light of the grace that they will receive. To live as a reflection of their heavenly Father. And to live in the light of the cross of Jesus Christ. So we'll study 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 21 in three sections under three headings. Remember your future grace. Remember your future grace. Number two, remember your Holy Father. It's not the Pope. Remember your Holy Father. That's God. Number three, remember your ransom by Christ. Remember your ransom by Christ. Those three points are going to form the outline of the rest of the sermon. Let's begin with our first point. Remember your future grace. This is just verse 13. So just for now, take a look at verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
the weight and freight of this verse is located in those words, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. Peter is saying, remember or look forward to your future grace in Jesus. But there are words that come before those words. In fact, the opening word of our passage reminds us that we're in the midst of a larger section. Whenever we run across the word therefore, we know that it's there for a reason. Peter wants to exhort his readers to do something in light of what he's just said. This is often what scholars call the indicative and imperative dynamic. The indicative is something that is true. And the imperative is something that we should do. Peter has just said, look, brothers and sisters, look, Christians, you're going to receive your salvation. That's the indicative. That's what's true. Now Peter gives the imperative. Prepare your mind. Be sober-minded. Set your hope or your mind on your future grace. Peter's argument, it works like this. Look, God is going to give you your future inheritance. Therefore, live like you're going to get it. God's going to give you your future inheritance. Therefore, live like you're going to get it. For Peter, living like we're going to receive our inheritance means that we must prepare our minds for action. And this is an idea that's loaded, actually, with Old Testament imagery. You might have a footnote there in your Bible. Immediately following this phrase, it says something like, in the Greek, girding up the loins of your mind. That would be a literal translation of the Greek. And those translating the, the Greek, those, the ESV um, editors decided to put the Greek into words that kind of more naturally connect with readers like us. We understand preparing our minds for action with a little more ease than kind of girding up the loins of your mind. But there's something useful about that phrase, girding up the loins of your mind. Back in Peter's day, uh, most wore long flowing robes that often would almost touch the ground. So girding up your loins would mean taking up the bottom of your long flowing robe and tucking it into your belt. When you did this, you were ready to move swiftly for battle or for travel. And part of the purpose of this was to make sure that you were unencumbered in your movement and that you wouldn't trip over your garment. This imagery harkens back to what the people of Israel were to do on the night of the Passover. In Exodus chapter 12, we learn that the people of Israel were to prepare themselves for a journey, for they were getting ready to leave Egypt. And here Peter is continuing his exile and sojourning theme. He's saying, Believer, gird up the loins of your mind. Remove anything that would hinder you from living as an exile and a sojourner on your journey to the next. Your mindset has to be that of a traveler. Travelers pack light. They don't want to be weighed down and they certainly don't want to be tripped up. Peter is not only using language that's reminiscent of the Exodus, but he's also using language that Jesus used. So in Luke chapter 12, verses 35 to 36, Jesus said this, Stay dressed for action, or gird up your loins. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. You see, this teaching from Jesus comes in the context about his return in judgment. Jesus gave these instructions for the purpose of reminding us that he will return at an hour which we do not expect and therefore we must be ready. So, just as one's feet would be clear, so Peter is asking for our minds to be clear 
and focused. But he asks for more too. You see there, he asks us to be sober-minded. And being sober is the opposite of being drunk. It's the opposite of being impaired. And wouldn't you know it, in Luke 12, the passage that I just mentioned and read from, Jesus' words, Jesus uses this imagery too. So listen to what Jesus went on to say in Luke chapter 12, verses 45 to 46. But if that servant says to himself, My master is delayed in his coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and in an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. Now those are fierce words from Jesus. But do you know whose question prompted those words? It was the author of our letter. It was Peter whose question set Jesus off to discuss these things. And it seems like Peter really took Jesus' words to heart and that he wants us to take Jesus' words to heart too. Believers in Jesus are certainly to avoid literal drunkenness. We're not to be intoxicated or inhibited by alcohol. But in the same way, we ought not be intoxicated or inhibited by the things of this world. We must think clearly and carefully about our careers and finances. Right? Do we, do we think about them in light of Jesus and eternity? We, we must think clearly and carefully about our possessions and pleasures. Does, does the world set the standard or does Jesus? We must think carefully about our, our plans and priorities. Uh, whose agenda wins? The world's or Jesus? We, we must think clearly about these things. And sorry, brothers and sisters, but being a Christian means you must think. You, you cannot simply be told what to think. You must think. Uh, you must wrestle with the Scriptures. You must make wise decisions. You must seek out wisdom from friends as you think and ponder on these things. You, you should seek out the wisdom of mature believers. We must wrestle with the Scriptures and make wise decisions in light of them. And, and what we think about our careers and finances, our, our possessions, our priorities, our, our pleasures, uh, must not distract, detract, or, or diminish our hope of glory. So whatever conclusion we come to about our possessions and plans, our priorities, our careers, those things must not diminish our hope of glory. Peter has a distinct emphasis on our minds, doesn't he? Our minds must be prepared. Our minds must be sober, which means our minds must be engaged. Our, our minds must also be drawn toward our future grace, our certain future grace. We must remember our future grace. We must think carefully about our earthly today in light of our eternal tomorrow. So, so notice what Peter says next there. He says, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Children, children understand hope. Um, after the service, the children are hoping for a snack. Uh, they, they're pretty sure they're going to get one because faithful brothers and sisters have been putting a snack on that table downstairs for, for years now. But it's possible that we've run out of snack supplies. That would be a tragedy. Right, children? But this is how we often think about hope. We often think about hope as a sincere desire that we have 
but that we really can't know for sure if it's going to materialize. Right? The kids of our church can't really set their hopes fully on receiving a snack after the service. It's not a foregone conclusion because all kinds of variables and uncertainties exist. A, a hungry elder might have eaten all the cookies. Uh, a deacon may have forgotten to purchase goldfish. A key to the pantry might have been misplaced and therefore the snack supplies are locked away. But I think our, our kids can figure out how to get in. Um, all sorts of variables might stand in the way of the children and their snacks. So they can't really set their hope fully on getting a snack after the service. That's how we often think about hope. It's something that's like a wish, but it's not guaranteed. But here's the thing. That's not how the Bible talks about hope. The Bible does not use the word hope as though it were a longing that might not materialize. The Bible uses the word hope as something certain, something sure, something guaranteed. So here's Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. There, there's a certainty there. The reason why hope in the Bible is something that is certain and sure and guaranteed because God guarantees our hope. And God is faithful. God delivers. And so Peter, he does not allow, did you notice this? He does not allow for a partial setting of our hope on the future. Now we see that he requires that we set our hope what? What's the word there? Go on. Fully. That's right. He requires that we set our hope fully on the grace that what? Will be brought. Peter does not allow for us to hedge our hopes. He doesn't allow for us to diversify our desires. He says that we must bank our entire eternal existence on the future grace that we have been promised and that God will bring to us at the coming of His Son. Our hope of future grace is more certain than the package that Amazon promised to bring to us in two days' time. Our hope can't be spoiled by porch pirates or nefarious delivery men who swipe what's inside of the package or mistaken factory workers who forget to put the book in the box or the box on the truck. Our salvation, our future grace, isn't something that's handled with human hands and therefore subject to uncertainty. Our salvation, Peter has told us in this letter, is guarded by God and the fullness and final nature of it will be delivered to us at Jesus' coming. It will be brought. Just rejoice in these words. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. It's coming. It will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, from time to time in our lives, it becomes clear that we have not fully set our hope on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Some of us have set our hopes on other things. And God in His grace and mercy has shattered some of those hopes. He has shown us that they're not secure. And He has shown us that they weren't worthy of our hopes to begin with. God in His mercy and grace has shattered our hopes of a, a sterling or sparkling career. God in His mercy and grace has shattered the hopes of an ideal family life. 
God in His mercy and grace has shattered the hopes of a, a solid or stable financial future. God in His mercy and grace has shattered the hopes of a life free of health troubles. God in His mercy and grace has shattered our hopes in other ways too. And I wonder if you noticed that I said God has shattered these hopes in His mercy and grace. How is this shattering of our hopes God's mercy and grace to us? This is God's mercy and grace to us because He is showing us that the only thing ultimately worthy of our hopes is Him. He's the only one that never moves. He's the only one who is our rock. And He is the one who will bring that future grace to us at the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Dear Christian, beloved child of God, if you have found yourself disappointed by your hopes and dreams being demolished, remember that your heavenly Father is calling you into His loving arms. When will our future grace arrive? In the future. But Peter, he specifies further, doesn't he? He says, it will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And in here, Peter has in mind the day of Jesus' return. The, the word in the Greek here for revelation is, is apocalypsis. And, and revelation is a good translation. Uh, because the idea is the one who is hidden will be revealed or disclosed. On that day, on the day of Jesus' return and the consummation of all things, the scriptures teach us that we will be raised up in glory. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 43. On the day of Jesus' return, God's children will be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of that judgment. Matthew 10, 32 and Matthew 25, 23. On the day of Jesus' return, we will be made perfectly blessed, both in soul and in body. John chapter 1, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, and 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12. When Jesus returns, we will enter into the joy of our Master. We will enter into the joy of the new heavens and the new earth, where our bodies will never see disease or decay or death and will never be disappointed again. We will be like the Lord Jesus. And most of all, on the day of His return, we'll we'll see Him, our Savior, who bought us and secured our salvation. We must remember this future grace to come and live accordingly. Brothers and sisters, we have only begun to taste grace. You've only begun to taste God's grace to you. We have only begun to taste and see that the Lord is good. And he's, he's so good to have sent Christ to us. He's so good to have sent His Holy Spirit into our hearts. And He has yet more grace for us. He's so, so good to us. So set your hope fully on the grace that you're going to receive at the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. But perhaps you think, that's wonderful, and I love that, and I'm so excited about that. 
but it's also theoretical. Like that's, that's gospel in the air, but you want gospel on the ground. Well, what about today? What is living in light of that last day? look like today? Well, it necessarily means that trials are short. And so you can suffer knowing that they will come to an end. When when faced with surprise and scorn and slander, you can remember your future. And remember, this present life is too short to respond with the same scorn or slander. It certainly means that politics are not ultimate. Money is not ultimate. Materialism is not ultimate. Fame is fleeting. And it also means that you can be bold in evangelism. You can be bold in evangelism because if they kill you, you're just going to see Jesus. But that's not really our fear in evangelism, is it? Death isn't really our fear in evangelism, our real fear in evangelism is being recognized as an exile. It's being outed as an outsider, as one who doesn't really belong here, and so being treated as one. I think if we're honest, each of us, all of us, myself included, this is one of our fears. And so we have to pray, brothers and sisters, that we can forsake the comfort and love of this world because we love Jesus and the next more. Remember your future grace and invite others into that future grace in Jesus Christ. Well, after telling his readers to remember their future grace, Peter tells his readers and us to remember our Holy Father. This is our second point. Remember your Holy Father and and follow along as I read 1 Peter 1, verses 14 to 17. You see verse 14 there. As, this is what you are, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially, According to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now, I hope that you see a deeply relational framework pervades these verses. Peter begins there in verse 14 with a recognition that believers are children. Then he reminds them in verse 17 that they call on God as Father. And the truth that stands between verses 14 and 17 is that God is holy, and so his children are to be holy. Believers are children, and to be more precise, they are, you see there, obedient children. They are those who obey their holy and heavenly Father. This is a precious truth. We know that this isn't just some general connection between God and men, but this is a special connection. It's true. It's true that God God is the Father of all mankind In the sense that he has created them and given them life and breath. However, the the scriptures also speak of believers in Jesus as God's children in in a special sense. In John chapter 1 verse 12, we're told that all who receive Jesus, that is, all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. 
This is good news, isn't it? The holy God makes us his children. And we need to be honest about what kind of people we are. See, our parents were stuck with us when we came into the world. But God wasn't stuck with us. And still he pursued us and made us his children. And how did he do that? How could he do that when he is so holy and we are so filled with sin? We're liars and thieves. We're uh, mental adulterers and idol worshipers. We commit murder in our hearts and we're discontent with what God has put in our hands. How could God make us his children when we have broken his law? The Apostle Paul, he tells us in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, Paul writes, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Adoption is God's work through his Son and Spirit to bring us into his heavenly family. Through adoption, God becomes our Father. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, we obey God's commands to repent and believe in Jesus. We are obedient children through God's grace. And here's the remarkable thing about what Peter is saying. We are obedient children, and we need to keep obeying our Holy and Heavenly Father. We have obeyed by responding to Jesus in repentance and faith, and we need to keep obeying God through ongoing repentance and faith. And as if Peter knows the darkness that still lingers in our hearts, he tells us there, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Isn't it remarkable how the scriptures so often see right through us? Peter, how did you know that we would be tempted to return to our old sins? Like a a dog returns to its vomit, as the Proverbs say. How did you know, Peter, that we would be tempted to be conformed or pressed into the mold of everyone else in this world? How would you know that we'd be tempted to adopt their mindset, their values? Do you feel this? Do you feel the pull of the passions of your former flesh? How do we abstain from being conformed to the passions of our former ignorance? How do we refrain from returning to the ways of the world? Well, it's right there in verse 14. It's one word, obey. Don't obey the calls of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Instead, obey your holy and heavenly Father. As you live, as you're tempted, as you're tried, remember that your heavenly Father is holy and you're to be like Him. He is holy. And since you bear His name, you ought to be holy too. Who God is shapes how we live. That's a simple principle of the Christian life. Who God is shapes how we live. He is holy, and it's our high privilege to show the world His loving holiness, His gracious holiness, His righteous holiness. You'll notice that in verse 16, Peter quotes from Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44, which is the passage that we're going to consider together tonight in our evening prayer service. For now, just, just note that it's a command. Do you see that there? It's a command. This is what one scholar said. This command appears a number of times in Leviticus. It was first given to the Israelites as God's people, but now applies to the spiritual Israel, the church of Jesus Christ. It was applied to those whom God rescued from the bondage of slavery, and now it applies to those He has rescued from the bondage of sin. 
And if you want to know what this looks like in practical terms, to be holy as God is holy, then you could just read Leviticus chapter 19 later this afternoon. A dear saint pointed this passage out to me earlier this past week. This is how Leviticus chapter 19 begins, verses 1 to 4. And the Lord Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord Yahweh your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord Yahweh your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal, for I am the Lord Yahweh your God. As, as the Lord continues to speak there, in, in Leviticus chapter 19, He calls His people to care for the poor and the sojourner among them. Verse 9. He calls His people not to steal. Verse 11. Or to lie. Verse 11. Or to swear falsely. Verse 12. Or to be partial. Verse 15. Or to slander. Verse 16. Or to hate your brother. Verse 17. Or to take vengeance. Verse 18. Or to bear a grudge. Verse 19. To be holy is really to live like Jesus. To selflessly and sacrificially love. And if you read Leviticus 19 this afternoon, you'll find that there's virtually no area of life that God does not express His right to rule. Notice what Peter says there at the end of verse 15. He says, Be holy in all your conduct. This feels like an impossibly high standard, doesn't it? But, but ask yourself this question. Can God call us to anything else? Can the holy God call us to anything else but holiness? Can He really tolerate sin? This is where the truth that He is our Father must comfort our hearts and challenge us. We will sin, but He will never stop loving us. We will disobey, but He will never disinherit us. And still, the certainty of our salvation does not curtail the call to holiness. No, it charges our call to holiness with God-glorifying energy. So look at verse 17 again. See what Peter says there. He says, And if you call on Him as Father, Peter's saying, Look, since you call on Him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Look, if you, if you really are a child of God, since you are a child of God, then you should revere your Father. You will recognize His impartial judgment. Look, He deals with sin. He deals with all sin. He, he punishes sin. He will punish all sin. If you, if you are a child of God, since you are a child of God, you will recognize that He has dealt with your sin at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, where He punished all of your sin in His most beloved Son. Out of a holy awe and reverence, you will aspire and desire to live in such a way that brings honor to His name. Since you are His child, since you really have been saved by grace, then your heart's greatest desire is to be obedient to Him, to be His servant, to do His will, to bring Him glory. We need to recognize here that when Peter says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, He's not saying that we ought to be afraid of life in this world or afraid of God. We don't live anxious or afraid of the difficulties of our exile. Peter's also not saying that we should live anxious or afraid of God. No, the idea here is, is one of reverence and awe. 
We, we so revere our holy and heavenly Father that we live in a way that brings Him honor. I heard one Christian illustrate it like this. A boy, a schoolboy, was being goaded by his friends to do something foolish and wicked. And he refused to do it. And so his friends asked him, what, what, are you afraid of getting hurt? Are, are you afraid of your father? And the boy replied, no, I'm not afraid of getting hurt. I'm not afraid of my father. I'm afraid of hurting my father. Do, do you see that idea here? Christians are those who want to honor their holy and heavenly father. We live life out of reverence for God. We want to bring Him glory and honor. We ought to be concerned that He is faithfully represented more than we might be favorably received. The love of the world is fleeting, but the love of our Holy Father is forever. We do not remember, obey, and honor our Holy and Heavenly Father to earn His love. We are His children We already have His love, and that will never change. We remember, obey, and honor our Holy and Heavenly Father so that others might come to see and know and love Him as He is. We do these things remembering our location. Did you notice that Peter locates us? Peter says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. We are exiles, but we're not home. We're wandering. We strive to live now as we will live for all eternity. We pursue holiness now because we will soon live in our Father's holy and heavenly home. Consider the words of J.C. Ryle from his incredible book entitled Holiness. Ryle writes, Heaven is a holy place. The Lord of heaven is a holy being. The angels are holy creatures. Holiness is written on everything in heaven. How will you ever be at home and happy in heaven if we die unholy? Death works no change in our essential character. The grave makes no alteration. Each will rise again with the same character in which he breathed his last. Where will our place be in eternity if we are strangers to holiness now? Suppose for a moment that you were allowed to enter heaven without holiness. What would you do? What possible enjoyment could you feel there? To which of all the saints would you join yourself? And by whose side would you sit down? Their pleasures are not your pleasures. Their tastes, not your tastes. Their character, not your character. How could you possibly be happy if you had not been holy on earth? Heaven is a holy place. Brothers and sisters, let's remember our future grace. And let's remember our holy and heavenly Father. But that's not all that we need to remember. We also need to remember what and who secured our future grace. We need to remember who sought us and bought us and brought us into the Father's holy and heavenly family. So here's where Peter says what we need to remember next. Peter says, remember your ransom by Christ. This is our third point. Remember your ransom by Christ. Though we're considering verses 18 to 21 in particular, let's begin reading there in verse 17. Pick up reading in verse 17. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, 
knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Here Peter exhorts us to remember our ransom by Christ. Peter tells us that we were ransomed from futility, verse 18. We were ransomed with Jesus' blood, verse 19. And we were ransomed to faith and hope in God, verses 20 and 21. Again, in verse 18, Peter tells us to remember that we were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from our forefathers. Many, most, if not all of us, know what a ransom is. It's a a payment to redeem or rescue someone from being held in bondage. The most common Old Testament imagery or picture of ransom and redemption is found in Israel's ransom from Egypt. Very often in the Old Testament, Israel is viewed as having been redeemed or ransomed or purchased from bondage in Egypt. Another image that we find is one in the prophets where the prophet Hosea redeems or he ransoms his wayward wife, Gomer. He, he buys her back. And both of those images of ransom reveal love. And what we're learning here is that our ransom by Jesus involved love too. The Lord Jesus loved us so much that he came to redeem us from walking in the feudal ways that our forefathers walked. And for the original readers of Peter's letter, this in all likelihood meant the worship of idols or the worship of man-made traditions. This could be true of Jews or Gentiles, and it was certainly true of both. Whatever the case may have been, just as ancient Israel was redeemed from slavery in Egypt, so believers in Jesus have been redeemed from slavery to sin. And when you think about it, working in sin really is futile. Sin really is irrational. It is irrational to rebel against the living and sovereign God. And that's just what sin is. It's rebellion against God. In truth, God will have His way. And there's no way we can overtake His throne. And in light of this, it's so kind of God to rescue, to redeem and ransom His people from the futile ways that we inherited from our forefathers. Without God's ransom, think of where we would be. We would simply and happily continue on in futility, only to eventually meet the God who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. In other words, we would continue on in our slavery to sin without any idea of what freedom actually looks like. But God has not left us as slaves. He has ransomed us, freed us, and made us His sons and daughters. Peter tells us, in a sense, to look back. Not to look back to past futility and sin, but to past favor and salvation in Jesus. To our ransom at the cross. We need to do this more often, don't we? When we sin, we need need to look back to the cross. When, When others sin against us, we need to look back to the cross. When we are tempted to sin, we need to look back to the cross. We need to remember the words that we'll sing at the close of the service. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Peter, he draws 
a contrast here with the materials with which people were ordinarily ransomed in the ancient world and with what we have been ransomed with. Do you see this contrast here? Notice that Peter picks costly materials. He picks silver and gold. And then and now these are some of the most costly materials that can be possessed on earth. But did you notice what Peter said about them? He said that they were perishable. And what does this imply about Jesus' blood? In the least, it implies that Jesus' blood is imperishable, that it has permanent power to enforce and hold our redemption. This word perishable can also mean corruptible. And yet notice what Peter says about Jesus' blood. It's like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. In other words, Jesus' blood is pure and incorruptible. Peter almost certainly has Isaiah 53 in the back of his mind. The sinless one gave his life to ransom the sinful ones. That's what Jesus did for us. But Peter is saying and implying more. He's also saying that Christ's blood is worth more than gold and silver. As precious as gold and silver are, the blood of Christ is even more precious. Listen to what 19th century Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon says. Place innocence and merit and dignity and position and Godhead itself in the scale. And then conceive what must be the inestimable value of the blood that Jesus Christ poured forth. That's what Jesus poured forth. Now look at what Peter says there at the end of verse 20. He says that all of this was for our sake. I think that phrase ought to pierce our hearts. It ought to break our pride into humble praise. This ought to break our pride into humble praise, not only because God the Father gave so costly a price, His own dear and most beloved Son, but also because He, has, he had been deliberately planning our rescue from before the foundation of the world. Jesus' death on the cross was not plan B. It wasn't the backup plan. It was the plan before the beginning began. Jesus, Peter says in verse 20, was foreknown before the foundation of the world. And what Peter is saying with that phrase is this. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit purposed in eternity past to rescue rebels like you and me through the shedding of Jesus' blood. The only way that this rescue, ransom, and redemption could take place was through the purchase price of Jesus' blood. And this is what we have the privilege of contemplating in the Lord's Supper as we'll close our service in just a few moments. Jesus had to die so that we could live. This plan was played out, as Peter says there in verse 20, in the last times. Are we in the last days? Well, if Peter understood his readers in the first century to be in the last days, then we must be in the laster days, as a friend of mine likes to say. And here's the good news. Jesus not only died paying the ransom to set sinners like us free from eternal condemnation and death and hell, but Jesus also got up from the dead. He was raised from the dead. That's verse 21. And he was given glory. He was given a glorified body, a body which could never die again. This is why our faith and hope are in God. 
Because He has promised us a future grace. Because He has adopted us as His beloved children. Because He has planned our salvation before the world began. Because Jesus has ransomed us from futility and the fire of hell. And because our hope has been raised from the grave and now sits on the throne of heaven. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer or follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you should turn from your sins and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. Trusting Him, believing that He lived a life without spot or blemish for you. Believe that He shed His precious blood for you, paying the price to ransom your soul. Believe that He was given glory through His resurrection from the dead. Believe that He will come again and give His people the grace of glory promised here in 1 Peter chapter 1. And Christian, as we conclude, we need to remember what all of this is meant to do in your life. It is meant to put strength in every stride of your sojourn. When your hope is set fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, then you can give thanks to God for the many gifts that He gives you in this life. You can give thanks for the gifts that He gives you and you can give them away too. Because your hope is set fully on that future grace, you can hold loosely to the things of this world. You can lose and lose and lose and lose because one day all of your losing in this life will give way to the completion and fullness of what Christ has won for us in glory. Because God has adopted you in Jesus Christ, because He has become your holy and heavenly Father, by the grace of His Spirit, you can be holy as your heavenly Father is holy. You can die to sin and live to righteousness. You can prepare for your holy home with your holy Father. Because you have been ransomed and redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, you can spend your life for the one who spilled his blood for you. Prepare for your commute to heaven. Pursue your journey by remembering your future grace, your holy and heavenly Father, and your ransom by the precious blood of Christ. Let's pray together.